Uh, we're going to start off this morning by praying, which is a really good way to start a church service. So uh, if you bow your heads with me. <laughs> Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here in your presence this morning. We thank you that every day you have something new for us, and this day is no exception, that you have something to speak to our hearts and our minds to reveal more of your character, more of your heart towards us. And we pray that you would open our hearts so that we can receive that this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing this week in our series on Philippians. Uh, we've spent the past several weeks walking through the New Testament book of Philippians, which is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. And he wrote this while he was in prison to the church at Philippi. 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 Philippi which is a church that he planted. He planted this church. He started it off. And so it is filled with people he knows, filled with his fellow believers in Jesus. And he had some very important things to communicate to that church, and a lot of that stuff applies really well to us as fellow Christians. And so we've been going through this series in Philippians and bit by bit kind of walking through the different verses and taking our time to really analyze what it is saying and what God's saying, what this says about God and who he is, what it says about how we're supposed to respond to that. Because sometimes, I mean, we read our Bibles and sometimes, you know, you have to kind of just go through a passage really quickly. Or you read through a few verses in the morning before you start your day. And, you know, we read it at face value sometimes. And there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that but we really get to see a lot more about the character of God when we study these scriptures, when we dive into what was that person experiencing in their culture when they wrote that? What was going on at that time? What did these words really mean to that culture the way they were spoken? And how is God trying to instruct us through that? And we can really get to see um, some different facets of the character of God when we do that. So that's why we're doing this. And the cool thing is, I mean, we're doing this through a series here on Sunday mornings, but you can do this stuff too. Um, you can go online and look up Bible commentaries. You can look up what the translations of certain Greek or Hebrew words mean. You can really dive into this on your own, and we would encourage you to do that. I would also encourage you to visit AntiochWheaton.com, because there you can listen to the previous sermons in this series and get a lot more information on what led us up to the point that we're at right now. We've seen through this book how all Christians, and that is all of us, we're all considered saints. We are all called to share the gospel, all called to share the good news about Jesus with everyone. Paul is encouraging the church through this book, and it's a message of encouragement in multiple ways. To focus on our achievements, to be unified together as a local church and as the body of Christ, and to walk in Christ-like humility it's encouragement that our sufferings and our struggles are not in vain, but they will be used by God to glorify him and spread the gospel of Jesus. It's encouragement to stay strong in the faith and to keep doing the kinds of things that saved people do. It's encouragement to understand our identity of who you and I are in Christ. And strong encouragement to persevere in our faith, to run the race well and complete this life as a follower of Jesus. God wants us to complete this race that Jesus has already won. And his mind-shattering love for us will not stop at pursuing us and bringing us to him or back to him through this journey. If that doesn't make you feel good, I don't know what will. It's good stuff. So this week we are continuing in Philippians 4, 2 through 9, and I want to introduce my son Julian 
who is going to read the text for us this morning. He's my second oldest son. He's six years old. He's awesome. He loves to read. He loves comfortable clothes. He loves screens. And he loves Jesus. All right, you ready, bud? Okay. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Sintachi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Yeah, buddy. Nicely done. That's my boy. All right. So uh, we've, we've been doing that every now and then, having a having a, a young person or someone else come up and, and read the passage. Uh, we like that it communicates that, as mentioned, all of us are saints. All of us are doing the work of the ministry. And there is nobody who is too young to take part in that. So <clears throat> that's the passage. You might have noticed we're starting this chapter in verse 2 this morning. And you might be thinking, that's kind of weird. Why don't we start with verse 1? Well, dividing the Bible up into chapters and verses actually didn't happen until well after a thousand years passed when the Bible was compiled. Prior to that, chapters and verses in Bibles just didn't exist. So back then, when people were reading the book of Philippians, it was really just like reading a long letter that somebody wrote. And so sometimes those chapter and verse separations are really helpful for us. And sometimes they might leave us kind of scratching our heads. And I think it was really wise that Andy included verse 1 in last week's message for two reasons. First, because he paid me $37 to say that. Okay, not really. Um, And secondly, because it perfectly wraps up that segment of text that he was preaching on from chapter 3, and it even points back to it. So if you missed last week, we were dealing with the rather difficult subject of how persevering in our faith and completing our time here on earth as believers and followers of Jesus is so important. It is the result of our salvation. It isn't what earns our salvation. That's accomplished completely by Jesus. But it is the evidence of our salvation. And that's what Paul was wrapping up in verse 1. He's letting them know that he loves them and he considers them as friends, and even more so, dear family members. And because of his love for them, he's asking that they stand firm in the Lord, stand strong, always placing their faith and trust in God and his strength, and continue to pursue living life with Jesus. Now, verse 2 is starting a new thought. Paul wrapped up his previous point, so that's where we're going to begin. So Paul is saying in verse 2, I'm urgently 
and fervently asking these two women in your church, Euodia and Syntyche, and yes, I looked up those pronunciations online, <laughs> to come to an agreement as Christians. Kind of sounds like there was a bit of a disagreement or even potential division within this church. We often need to apply the overarching, or overarching, general principles of the gospel to particular people and situations. A lot of times we have to apply this stuff to our everyday lives, and we should be doing that. Paul was already encouraging unity really hard in the previous chapters in this book. He was warning them against division, and right here is where he's bringing his point home. Euodia and Syntyche, it seems, had come to a disagreement, either one with, uh, you know, having to do with some civil matter, like who brought the best baba ganoush to the church social, or they were divided on a religious matter of doctrine or theology. But they clearly had some different options about something. Me preparing for a sermon throughout the week is, you know, reading Bible commentary, asking the Holy Spirit for revelation, and doing Google searches on what's the silliest sounding Jewish culinary dish. <clears throat> All right, <laughs> baba ganoush. So they've got this disagreement, but Paul doesn't say to this church, hey, go kind of knock their heads together and set them straight. <laughs> he doesn't tell them to deal out justice. He asks that they help these women. Paul talks about how both of these women have worked furiously hard by his side in telling people about Jesus. These women were spreading the gospel with Paul, which this should put to rest that silly notion that Paul was just some misogynistic woman hater who thought that women shouldn't be involved in ministry in any capacity other than sitting down and shutting up. He had respect for these women because of their faithful work in ministry. He asked this church to help them come to an agreement to be unified, to be of the same mind with the rest of the church. Now, back in chapter 1, we saw that this book Paul addressed to the whole church at Philippi. He's talking to all of them. But right here, Paul calls out somebody specifically to help above and beyond the whole church with this situation. He says, you, my true companion, my BFF, bro, Brohan, as my good buddy Guy Hain says, Brohan Solo. I'll take that a step farther. Brohan Solo from Empire Strikes Back. Not as roguish as the I shot Guido first from A New Hope, and not quite as, ah, oh, shucks, I'll pal around in the forest with the little Teddy Ruxpins as Return of the Jedi, but right in the middle. Sorry if you don't pick up on my screwy sci-fi references. I'm a child of the 80s and a nerd. Um, back to the text. Who is this person, this beloved companion that Paul's talking about? Well, most biblical scholars think it was Epaphroditus, who was probably the pastor of the church at Philippi. And so that makes a lot of sense. But whoever it was, this person was somebody that Paul trusted and relied on to unify and lead the people of this church and do it well. He's showing kindness and compassion for his fellow laborers, and so he's asking this person to do the same thing. And he recognizes that even though these women have been rock stars at helping him spread the gospel in the past, there has now come a time that they need some help. And we need to be aware of that in our midst. There may be people, members of our church, and former or even present leaders who have done incredible work in helping others, but they may have hit a point in their life where now they are in need of the rest of the church. That isn't weakness. It's not poor leadership. It's not anything to be ashamed of. It's actually beautiful because that's how a family is supposed to work. I have been very thankful in the times when I've been lacking in hope or feeling defeated or feeling depressed and my wife is on her A-game. 
and she's able to encourage me, and she sees my negative mood for what it is, and then she helps pull me out of it, or kicks me in the hindquarters until I move out of it myself. <laughs> and I'm glad to provide that same service in return for her sometimes. And we, we all need that. It, it's, it's uncanny how often that's happened, where it's like one of us is up and the other one's down, and then we help correct it because of that. Left on our own, we're just stuck in the down position. Uh, and this actually hit me this week because I had a pretty hard week. I had some, some difficult things, um, you know, whether it was an attack of the enemy as I was preparing for a sermon or whether it was just my own boneheaded decisions that made some problems for myself. I was feeling pretty rough. And as I'm going through the sermon, I'm realizing I'm not doing this thing that I'm about to ask everybody else to do. <laughs> so I shot a message out to the rest of our leadership team and said, I need some prayer because I'm having a pretty difficult time right now. And it was great to get the encouragement and the response that I got, but it's also great to like actually feel like, man, something's lifting, something's changing. You know, there's, there's an upswing happening here that's not as a result of my own efforts. It's God working on my behalf because of the prayers and support of other people in our midst. That's the way it's supposed to work. As Christians, we need to be looking out for our brothers and our sisters to help them when we can. And if you need help, ask someone for help. I know it's difficult. <laughs> I mean, it, my mind wasn't going there at all until I was working on this. But we need to make sure and make that a priority. If you need help, ask for help. Come up and talk to somebody at the end of service when we have our prayer line up here. Talk to a life group leader. Shoot somebody a message. And if the person that you reach out to doesn't have the capacity or the ability to help you as you need help, don't give up. Ask someone else. Yeah. Pray that God would inspire another believer to come alongside you. Don't quit. Do not go through something alone. And when someone offers help, take it. Even if it kind of rubs your pride, even if it doesn't look like what you thought it would, pray about it and receive it with Christ-like humility. That's how we help each other. So, on with the passage. Paul refers to these people who have been serving with him as having their names in the book of life. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, this is called the book of heaven or the Lamb's book of life. There was a custom in that day that the people Paul's writing to would have been very familiar with in both Jewish and Gentile cities that they would have a book that registered the free men in that city. The people whose names got put into this book were the people who were special. They were set apart. And the reason was because they weren't slaves. They weren't wanted for any crimes. And they were completely free from obligation or debt. When Paul talks about these people this way, he's recognizing that they are free residents of the kingdom of God. They are rightful citizens of heaven. No longer in debt to sin, no longer a slave to it, but fully, completely free people belonging to and living in God's kingdom. And that's really cool because if you've accepted Christ, that's you. That's good news. Which makes sense because the very next thing he says in verse 4 is rejoice. Get happy. Stay happy. <laughs> he says rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Why do we repeat ourselves? either because it's really important or because, like our kids sometimes, we don't always listen and obey the first time. I'm reminded of uh, 
when my wife and I went on our honeymoon, we were in Mexico, and we were taking one of those day-long excursions where you go off, and we were going to uh, Isla Mujer, which is this island, and they had uh, you know, a bunch of different activities you could do. You could swim with some sharks that were actually like nurse sharks that don't have any teeth, and you know, they were like Thorzined out of their mind or something. It was kind of weird. Um, but uh, went snorkeling, all that fun stuff. But there was a guy on the boat, and he knew he had a whole boat full of people who were taking full advantage of the you know, no-cost booze back at the resort. And so he wanted to make sure everybody got back on the boat at the right time, otherwise they'd be stranded on this island all night. And so he kept going around the boat all day long, like, tres, 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 back on the boat, tres, tres, tres. Because <laughs> he's probably seen this happen before, <laughs> where somebody didn't listen. It was important, so he kept saying it over and over and over again. He was repeating it because it was important. It is important that we rejoice in God. God is actually good enough for us to be able to find joy in him, even in the most horrific circumstances this world could ever dish out. It's not easy to grasp onto that in those moments of hardship and heartache. It's really difficult, but it's true. And Paul tells us how we can rejoice despite our struggles. I'm sure Euodia and Sintichi, as they're going through this fight with each other, this disagreement that they've got, I'm sure they're not feeling like joy, blessings. I'm sure they're probably feeling pretty rough. If this is a big enough issue that Paul is talking about it while he's in jail, they're probably hurting. They're experiencing a lot of heartache. And I'm sure that's causing ripples throughout the rest of the church. Because if this is a big enough issue for him to call out in a letter addressed to the church, it seems like this is probably a big issue for the church at Philippi all throughout it. But he's telling these people, you can rejoice. Don't lose, don't lose a grasp on your joy in God, regardless of this. He says, we are called to reasonableness. Another way that's translated is gentleness. We are called to be gentle. We're called to have a good temperament that is easily seen by everyone. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, the original that this verse is translated from, which is pronounced in a series of sounds I cannot pronounce, literally means show a good disposition towards all other people. Show kindness to everyone, not just Christians. There is no room for squabbling or selfishness or bigotry here. And the reason? The Lord is at hand. God is near. Considering that God is watching us, God is with us, that should keep us behaving rightly towards all the people that we encounter. Did you ever have a time when, like, you were hanging out with some friends, and you were about to make some really knuckle-headed decision, and then one of your pals nudged you and was like, hey, 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 your mom's watching. <laughs> kind of changes our decision process, right? That's not actually what this is talking about, although, you know, it's a good motivation for behaving yourself. But what it's really saying, if we go back and take a look at the scripture, which uh, my tablet was having some issues, so I'm going analog today. Um, so as I turn, we're, we're back to talking about how those verse designations didn't happen until way, way after this thing was written. So let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Does that seem to make more sense, or does it make more sense? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. God is with you. You don't need to be worried. 
This leads into one of my favorite all-time Bible verses. This is worthy of being stitched on pillows across the South, worthy of being tattooed onto pastor's forearms, and worthy of being turned into Christian music that sounds like secular music. I like Christian Nickelback, not as much as I like Christian Daltrey, but what I like the best is Christian Adele. She gives me the same chills I get as when I listen to secular Adele, but I get the peace of knowing that she's not going to burn in hell forever. I keep praying that Jesus is going to send us Christian fog hats soon. All right, sorry. <laughs> Seriously, this is an amazing verse of encouragement. The Lord is at hand. God is with you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> you don't need to be anxious about anything, but in everything, 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 with thanksgiving, ask. You can ask for help. You can ask for guidance. You can ask for resources, for comfort, for friendship, for patience, wisdom, humility, comfort for your heartache, and you can even ask for help with your lack of seeing or feeling God at work in your life. But we're told to do it with thanksgiving. We start from a position of thankfulness for what he's already done. Now, those anxious feelings are very real. And I know that not being anxious is not as easy as flipping a switch. Studies show that almost 20% of Americans struggle with anxiety on a daily basis. And out of those, only 37% ever seek treatment. And this anxiety usually leads to other problems like severe depression and stress-related health disorders. And that's a lot of people who are just suffering with that. God does not want us to just suffer through it. We definitely support people getting professional medical help for mental and physical issues. Totally a good thing to do. This verse is encouraging us that when those feelings come, we don't have to stay in that place. We don't just have to keep feeling this overwhelming anxiety. We can turn to God and ask for his help because he wants to do that. He wants to help us. And when we reach out to him like this, it says the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds. Peace will guard your heart and mind. Now, when I was studying this this last week, like I said, this is one of my favorite verses. I've said and read this verse a lot. But something jumped out to me because peace doesn't seem like a very good guard. You've got a million dollars. Where do you want to put it? In a bank vault, surrounded by cameras, and those old guys with thin little gray mustaches and big guns. You're driving through Los Cabos, Mexico. Los Cabos. Uh, this town was recently given the title of most violent city on earth. What kind of vehicle do you want to be in? How about an M1 Abrams tank, right? Or the DeLorean from Back to the Future, so you can go back in time and slap yourself for ever thinking of taking your family on a vacation through a hotbed of Mexican drug cartel territory? What do you want to guard your heart and mind? Peace? 
about a pit bull with a shotgun and opposable thumbs so it can operate the shotgun? Not peace. <laughs> if I need something to guard my heart and mind that God's going to give me, I'm thinking, how about the strength of God? How about the power of God? How about the mighty, colossal WWE smackdown of Jehovah to guard my heart and mind? Not peace. It seems like peace would be the resulting effect of my heart and mind being guarded. But here, it's not actually talking about how this peace of God is going to protect our hearts and minds from something coming against us, but watching over our hearts and minds. It will be keeping our hearts and minds from going astray, guarding them against themselves. <laughs> Peace will be the loving caregiver to your heart and mind, the guardian, the babysitter. But like that movie when Vin Diesel played a babysitter, because God is still super tough. By experiencing the peace of God that is so incredibly peaceful that we can't even comprehend it with our earthly minds, it will keep us from responding to our hurts and needs by sinning. We won't turn to sin out of desperation or fear or anxiety. We won't be like, man, this is just too hard, so I'm just going to throw up my hands and go along with it. We won't need to do that. We won't try to fix our lives ourselves, but we will rest in that peace with thankfulness for his goodness and we'll seek God to answer our prayers. This peace will keep us calm and content as we do that. Isaiah 26.3, that's a, another verse I'm referencing today. Isaiah 26.3 says, God, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is focused on and trusting in you. You will keep that person in perfect peace whose mind is focused on you and is trusting in you. And that's what this next verse in Philippians is all about, keeping our minds focused on him. It says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, these all seem like attributes of God, think about these things. Are we doing this? Are we actually focusing on this stuff? How often are we focused on God throughout the week? How often do we take time to meditate on what's good and right and true in this world? Well, that's hard because it usually seems like there aren't very many positive options in this world to think about. People talk about this all the time, but I mean, you just watch the news, right? It's no longer about informing you. It's about either making you scared or afraid. <laughs> so hopefully you'll keep watching. How many things fit that description on our social media feeds? Like you're just flipping through your Facebook feed and it's like, yeah, good, right, true, noble, honest, lovely, Maybe if you've unfriended everybody but Timothy Keller. Does our Netflix history show that we're thinking like this? I don't know why I put that one in there. That burns me. I'm sorry. Ouch. Um. <laughs> Seriously, though, I need to do a better job at this myself. I am not just suggesting that we completely ignore and turn a blind eye or insulate ourselves from the hard, sometimes dark truths of the world that we live in. We should not live in a bubble where we pretend that everything's hunky-dory, but it's too easy to spend most of our time viewing those sources, and then pretty soon we get sucked in by that narrative that truth and kindness are all but gone 
and our world is just seconds away from chaos. I mean, talk about causing anxiety. <laughs> we have to focus on goodness. Otherwise, we inevitably start looking more like the world around us than like Jesus. We cannot count on our culture to provide these good things for us to think on, these good things for, for us to help steady our minds, because our culture is a mess. <laughs> and it makes sense why. Cultural scholars even have a popular formula about what music and movies and pop culture elements become widespread or successful. And it goes like this. This is the quote. The popularity of a given cultural element, that means an object, a person, an event, or an ideology, the popularity of a given cultural element is directly proportional to the degree to which that element is reflective of the audience's beliefs and values. So, that means if you go to a Newsboys concert and they show something up on the screen beforehand that relates to the Christian life, everybody goes, yeah, that's like me, I like that, I'm for it, that's good. If a movie comes out and it portrays what's mostly going on throughout the country, people go, yeah, I like that, that's cool, that's like me, I can relate to that, that's good. Since we live in an increasingly post-Christian world, where the majority of people have not submitted their lives to Jesus, and morality is viewed as fluid and relative, it's no surprise that the films and the music and the popular culture that overwhelmingly are out there are promoting relativism and usually outright hedonism. <laughs> they glorify the things that support the feelings of being lost and broken and hopeless and drowning in sin and justifying that sin to try and bury our guilt. And it's no surprise that it creates a self-sustaining cycle of more of the same. And so as a result, it's not a matter of thinking like, all right, what would God want me to think about versus what would the devil want me to think about? Or what would Jesus do versus what would the devil do? It's what would Jesus do versus what would make for good TV? If we are living our lives in a way that would make for an entertaining reality program, we should probably rethink our commitment to Christ. Which leads to the very last verse that we're looking at today. Paul says, what you have learned from me, put into practice. So we're back to obedience. But it's encouraging to get this encouragement. Um, it's, it's inspiring to be called to greater things. But we have to put it into practice or it remains just words on a page. Now, Paul has obviously been trying his best to lead by example. Because of his statement, he says, what you've learned from me, what you've received or heard from me, what you've seen in me, put that into practice. And the results of following this advice, what happens when we pursue unity, when we help each other, when we rejoice in the Lord at all times, when we refrain from worry and anxiety, and with thankfulness, ask God for help and focus on what is good and right. It says, the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Paul is stressing the way to find peace through this whole passage. Peace is the goal. Go ahead and have the band come back up. The peace that he's talking about is the peace that only God can provide. There's the peace of knowing that our eternal salvation is guaranteed through Jesus. We don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to have anxiety about that. 
the peace of knowing that God is with us and he's for us and he's ready to help us. He wants his friends to know peace because he clearly thinks it's crucial to walking out a Christian life. That's something that Paul desires for them and he desires for us. And I think it's so obvious that that is something that God wants for us because he is the God of peace. That's a part of his character and he wants to share that with us. He wants us to know that about him. It's a super important aspect of who he is. So do you need peace today? It's available. I have needed it this week, and I have seen it working. I still need more, (laughs) but it's in process. No matter how dark or bleak your circumstances are, no matter how tumultuous your emotions and feelings may be, no matter how hard anxiety has hit you in the past, that doesn't have to be the rest of your life. That doesn't have to be your story. You can be set free. God loves you, and he wants you to know his peace. And not just know it, but to have your heart and your mind guarded and kept safe and secure by that peace. I want us to take a quick moment and pray. So if everybody would bow your heads. Let's just take this moment, and first, we're going to start off just like it asks us to. And let God know something that you're thankful for. Just thank him for his goodness. And I know some of you might even be thinking, I'm having a hard time thinking of anything. If you've really had a, a difficult struggle lately, you can just thank him that you've made it this far. You're still here. And after that, after we've thanked him for his goodness, just ask him, for that peace. Make your requests known to God. We find our peace in Jesus. Eternal peace of knowing that we are saved by Jesus Christ. He paid the price for our sins, sins that separated us from God forever. But by believing in Jesus and accepting his gift of salvation, we can know that we are rescued and will spend eternity in God's presence. And if you don't know what that peace feels like today, if you haven't yet made the decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, please do come up and talk to one of the people up front as we pray during this last song.